So good. Well, welcome to The Vine. Uh, my name's Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are so glad you are here with us. And we're in week five of our uh, Exodus series here. And in week five, at the end of chapter two, everything changes. In fact, this is a turning point in the whole of the story of Exodus that we're looking at today. This is a moment where God steps in and does what only God can do. And just in that song that we've just been singing and that desire that we have for God to fight battles for us, God to come through for us, this is the moment in the story where God reveals himself. And in revealing himself, he creates for his people renewed hope. I told you in week one of this series that the book of Exodus is provided to us and, and is shaped for us in five movements. And those movements are slavery, promise, liberation, identity, and home. And over the last four weeks, we've been immersed in the slavery aspect of those five movements. We've been looking at the reality of slavery, and we've been looking at it, yes, in terms of what the scriptures tell us about Egypt and about Israel and the slavery that they're going through. But more than that, we've been focusing on stepping back and saying, what about our slavery? What about our brokenness? What about the stuff that we're dealing with? And how do these two things create and come together? And we've been seeing for, for Israel, so also for us, that slavery is a total thing. Slavery is completely holistic. We, we, we saw in week two how slavery was not just physical for the Israelites, but it was physical, emotional, social, spiritual. And it's the same for us, that our, our slavery to sin doesn't just impact our spiritual lives. It impacts everything that we are, everything that we do, the totality of who we are, our relationships, what we do in our workplaces, how we are in our city and our neighborhoods. All of that is impacted by the realities of the slavery of our sin. And over the last four weeks, we've seen some pretty tough stuff. Just last week, we saw Moses fall into a place of disruption and disorientation, having worn for far too long the wrong identities, the wrong clothes of who he truly was, wrestling with the reality of, am I, am I an Egyptian or, or am I a Hebrew? Am I an oppressor or am I a part of the oppressed? And we saw last week that God comes and begins to stir something in his heart. And all of our journeys from slavery to freedom starts because God begins to burn something, turn something, do something in our hearts. And Moses' heart begins to change and he, he looks out on his people. And although he had been looking out on them for 40 years, on this particular day, he looks out and something changes. He sees them differently. And because he sees them differently, he, he decides he wants to react. But we saw last week how he reacts. He ends up murdering an Egyptian who's abusing one of his people. And, and we look at this and we can see Moses has the right heart, but he has the wrong method. He has the right kind of desire, but he has the wrong idea on how to put that together because slavery to sin has so immersed him that his identities are so broken that he doesn't know how to react and respond to what it is that God is doing in him. And in this rightful heart to want to be a deliverer, he ends up committing the sin of murder. And we saw last week that Pharaoh finds out about this, and Pharaoh is so angry, so upset. We might think, well, why? It's because Moses had been adopted into Pharaoh's family. This wasn't just a tiff between two leaders of different nations. This was a brokenness within a family. And the very one who was hoping to raise Moses to take over as Pharaoh, now that one wants to kill Moses. 
And Moses is so broken by this, he's so torn up by all of this, that in fear of his life, he flees from Egypt, and he goes all the way over as far as he can through the desert to a place called Midian. And we're going to talk a little bit more next week as we come to the burning bush. I can't wait to come to the burning bush next week. We're going to look all about Midian then. But in Midian, Moses finds himself disjointed, disorientated. He's a wreck of a man. He's dealing with all this stuff that's happening in his identity. And it's almost as if we're traveling through the first two chapters of this movement of Exodus. And we can see how completely oppressive slavery is. And that oppression is so deep that Moses flees and finds himself completely turned upside down. And he realizes something that we all have to realize in our own journeys of Exodus. And that's that we can't save ourselves. We're not the ones who are able to free us from our sin. We're not the ones that can free our people. We we come to this realization that actually we need something outside of ourselves, something bigger than us, something more powerful than us, to step in and change the situation that we cannot change. And when we try to change it, like Moses did, we only often fall more and more into sin. Our own human effort can never create salvation for us. And so Moses, sitting at this well in Midian, a wreck of a man, realizes that there has to be something more. There has to be something outside of himself, and he's longing for a promise. He's longing to get a promise that God will come through. And I I sense in this room this morning, and for those that are joining us online, there's a lot of people here who are, are longing for a promise. Oh, God, speak to me. God, say something to me. Give me a promise that, that, that everything's going to be okay. And you have to understand that the journey of Exodus always begins with the coming of a promise. The beginning of Exodus always begins with the coming of a promise. And as bad as slavery has been, a promise now comes. And when God brings a promise, (laughs) just like I said a few moments ago, nothing can hold it back. And I want to show you the beauty of the coming of a promise. This is the last part of Exodus chapter 2. During that long period, remember Moses is writing, during that long period, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry to help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Just a a, a few verses in the Bible here, but this is a turning point in everything that is about to happen next in Exodus. And I I want you to see how cheeky Moses is right at the start here. He once again skips over 40 years of his life. He starts with, during that long period, and then he basically just goes through it. Remember last week we saw that Moses basically skips from when he's a baby in the waters of the Nile to when he kills the Egyptian. He just basically skips over 40 years of his life. He does it again right here. It's almost like he's saying, man, Midian was rough. Midian was tough. We're just going to skip over all of that stuff. So basically now, Moses is like 80 years old as he's writing this. And and Pharaoh has died. And you can almost get a sense as Moses is writing this that 
Israel themselves may have risen up, risen up in hope. <gasps> Pharaoh's died. Maybe the next person that comes in will be more benevolent. Maybe the next person that comes in might free us. And, and before we get carried away that when there's a change in authority, we think that there's going to be a change in slavery, notice what it says here. It says, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and they cried out. In other words, there is no change here. The slavery has continued. And I want you to get your head around this. Moses has left Egypt. He's in Midian and he's actually started a new life there. He's free. He gets married. He starts having kids. This guy's living the life. He learns to become a shepherd. All the while, for 40 years, his people are still suffering. His people are still locked in slavery. His people are still bound by oppression and injustice. And Moses is over here, and his people are here. No doubt, Moses skips over those 40 years. Because he wants us to understand that, that despite this kind of conflict between Moses seemingly living a life here and his people still in slavery, God has not given up on them. And the people need a promise more than ever before. It says here that they are groaning and crying out. These two words, very important, could not be more different. The word for groaning, the Hebrew word, it literally means to sigh. I wonder if any of you have ever done that about something in your life. <sighs> to groan, it means two things in the Hebrew. It means something that was personal and private and something that was done off the back of great pain. That classic, is exactly what it means here. And it's something that's personal and private, which is really interesting because Moses, in describing the slavery of his people and the pain that they're under at this time, he starts with the individual and the personal and the private he starts with the reality that slavery was actually hurting them personally. A few years ago, I was playing golf, about 15 years ago, and I'm on the 15th tee, and my game's going great. And I've got my driver in my hand, I'm looking down the fairway, and I'm thinking, this is going to go long and straight. If you ever play golf with me, you know that that's not how I play golf. But anyway, just, just roll with it. And as I go back like this, I do something with the lower back. I don't know what I did. I've done that motion many, many times in my life. Something tweaked to my lower back. I literally had to go on the ground and I had to lie there. I couldn't finish the round. For about two weeks, I had the most excruciating pain in my lower back. And since that day, for 15 years, every day, I still have a dull pain in my back. I groan a lot about my pain in my back. Almost constantly, you guys probably won't know this, but in private, on my own, I'm like, Ugh. I wonder if you resonate with this. What is it in your life that you groan about, that you find so hard to shake, and that you have almost kind of given into with that eternal sigh? Ugh. Now, this word is then contrasted with this other word, cry out. Now, you could not get a whole completely different idea in the Hebrew than this groaning, which was private and individual and uh, and a cry out, which was public and communal and loud. In fact, that word literally can be translated shriek. 
So there's this personal reality for the Israelites in their slavery where they're feeling something and it's like, oh, this burden of this pain. And yet together, they are coming together and they have not given up crying out for change. Now, this is really important. You see this because this is the reality for Israel right here. They are shrieking. They are crying out. They're asking God to step in and change things and do things. They are asking. The the word literally means to call out in hope of response. So they're not just going like, ah, life sucks. They're actually going, this is not right. This is not how I want things to be. This shouldn't be the people of God. We're crying out, God. We're asking you, God, to step in to do something. We will not give in. Privately, we're groaning. Publicly, we're joining our voices together and saying the world should be a different place. We shouldn't be under this oppression. We shouldn't be facing what it is that we're facing. We will cry out. Now, this is shocking because Israel has been in slavery by this time for a hundred years. This is not like me when I pray something for God and after a month he doesn't answer and I just give up. This is a hundred years of slavery. This is probably already four generations of Israelites that have come and gone in that time. And even after a hundred years, they have not given up. Even after a hundred years, they are still crying out in their slavery, asking God to come through. And the reality for all of us is that this should shake us up. This should change our thinking because it's so easy for us to get comfortable in our sin. And when we get comfortable in our sin, we silence the voice that should be crying out for change. Have you silenced a voice in you that should be crying out for change? One of the realities is is that we become comfortable in our sin. And as we become comfortable in our sin, we become comfortable in how things are. And that voice that was once inside of us has now come down. And that urgent desire that we've had before, to be holy before God, to walk with him, to, to do as much as we can, has gone. And the reality is this, some of us, have silenced the cry of our soul for freedom. Come on, church. I I need you to lean into this a little bit. Because I think this is really important for all of us here. Some of us have silenced the cry of our soul for liberation from our sin. And Israel are crying, shrieking, asking, pounding, believing, shouting as loud as they can all together for God to step in and do something. And I believe for some of you in this room, you need to rediscover your voice. You need to rediscover your cry. You need to draw a line in the sand and say, enough is enough. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to take a stand. I'm going to ask God. I'm not going to suppress it. Yes, maybe I haven't seen the freedom. Yes, maybe it seems like God has been distant. Yes, maybe the promise hasn't come through. It feels like God hasn't answered. He hasn't seen. But I will not silence my voice of hope. I will not silence my voice of prayer. I will not give in to the reality of my sin, but I will take a stand and say enough is enough. I will cry out. Some of you need to start crying out again. And we can see in the text here that Israel has remembered their God. 
The question in the text, though, is has God remembered them? Is God present with his people when they cry out? Does God draw near to us when we have a voice in our soul that says, I want more freedom? I want you to see what happens in the text, just a very small thing that Moses writes here. He says, the king has died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. This was not some random cry. This was not just lots of words in a vacuum. These words went up to God. And this is the first introduction to a personal reality of God. God's been mentioned in the Exodus so far, but this is the first time where God is about to step in and actually introduce himself, show us who he is. And like we say next week, we're going to see the personal intimacy of that God as he meets Moses in Midian. But in this moment, God begins to express himself through his heart, through his soul, through his character, through his emotions, through who he is, and mostly through his promise and his promise for his people. And it's this idea of God's character that is now going to define the rest of the Exodus journey. In fact, from this point forward, all the way through the next 38 chapters or so, God always refers back to this moment right here. He always comes back and says, this is who I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am this. I am that. You need to know my character. You need to know my heart because you are a people who are shaped by my character. And when we're shaped by the character of God, God's promises become our promises. God's word becomes our word. God's work and mission becomes our mission. When he says, pray that heaven will come to earth, God was looking at the church. And we align ourselves to the character of God. That's the thing that enables us to journey into freedom from our exodus. And we're going to see a lot of that as we go. But today, I want to open up this idea of the character of God with you. I want you to see why God acts on behalf of his people. What is it inside of him? What is it about his compassion that drives him to respond on behalf of his people? When we were in Egypt, that was a question that was going around my mind whilst we were filming this series. I was always asking myself, what was it? What was it in God's heart? What, what was it that, that caused God to want to have this response for his people? What makes God fight the battles that he fights for his people? And as we were there, um, uh, we had a chance to connect with somebody in, in Egypt. His name's Akram. Uh, he's an NGO worker. He runs an organization called Better for Kids. Uh, and he works with orphans in Egypt. And um, I wanted to sit down with him and find out a little bit more about his heart and why he serves and why he does what he does on behalf of others, hoping that I might encounter something about God's heart in what he does. And so I sat down with him. We did an interview. Um, we're going to play that for you now. I want to just encourage you, though, to lean into this, to really open your ears of both your heart and your head to hear this. Uh, Akram's English is not the strongest English, um, and so you do need to kind of just listen in. But he's got some incredible nuggets for us to understand about the heart of God in compassion. Let's check this out. I've come here to the bustling city of Cairo today, to the local offices of an NGO called Better for Kids International, to meet with one of their staff called Akram and find out a little bit more about the work they do. But even more importantly, to discover the central element to the start of the Exodus narrative. Akram. Hi, Andrew. Nice to meet you. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Are you, you. okay? Yes, really Have a seat, please. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to meet you today. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. You're welcome. 
Well, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Why don't we start by you introducing yourself? Uh, tell us a little bit about who you are, uh, your family, what you do. My name is Akram, and I have uh, 45 years. Mm -hmm. uh, since 2015, you've been working for an organization called Better for Kids International, I believe. Yes. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the work you're specifically doing with the orphans that you're working with? Yes, uh, since uh, 2015, I worked with the mission. It's called uh, Better for Kids uh, in here in Egypt. Uh, mission, Egyptian mission, mm -hmm. you can say that, say that. Uh, in Oriflame in here, in, in Egypt. For orphans? For orphans, yes. Mm. Uh, it's called uh, Good Samaritan. Mm. Uh, Good Samaritan orphans uh, for, we have uh, 40 uh, kids, uh, boy and girls, uh, different age, mm -hmm. since two years or one years, mm -hmm. uh, till uh, married. Mm. Tell us about where the children are from that you're working with, that you're serving. What, what sort of background do these children have? Okay, we serve with the, through the church mm -hmm. at the poor area. Mm. Uh, not directly with the family, mm -hmm. but through the church. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, the church tell us about the poor family and the kids, and we go to directly the, to the church and serve uh, with the kids. Mm. Uh, before the school, the age from three years or two years till six or seven years. Right, right. Uh, we make an education curriculum. Yes. A, B, C, D, and yes. uh, alphabet or something like that. Yeah. And uh, curriculum for the Piper study. Mm. Uh, I love the kids. Uh, all of my life I serve with the adults. Mm. Uh, I sing with the adults. I give the training with the adults. Mm. But uh, my heart with the kids. Mm -hmm. The wonderful time and the best time I spend during the week with my uh, Sunday school, mm -hmm. with uh, seven or 10 kids mm -hmm. in my class. And so it's the kids and it's their situation, it's their, the background and maybe the poverty they've experienced that does something in your heart. Yes, the need. The need they have. Yes, I search all the time uh, what the kids is need mm. so I can see uh, the kids for this situation uh, for this background for our family for the area it's very poor can he can found anything it's mm -hmm. easily mm -hmm. uh, so my heart uh, tell me the kids it's need yeah. need the first for the love yeah love without anything I love you just I love you Mm. without anything mm. uh, and the really uh, my heart can reach for the kids it's directly yeah uh, so I, I like to, to work with the kids mm. because if the kids uh, don't care for you it's okay yeah but if you uh, found really love for your heart he come for you uh, if if you punish him or yeah. if you make anything but still he love you yeah, yeah because you love the first and you have a really love right. for the kids so your love really motivates your yes. desire to help yes. them as well yes yes when you can't help a kid how, how does that feel for you personally is it frustrating are you upset uh, how, how do you handle the emotions when you when you can't help a kid uh, many time I uh, cry with the kids <laughs> when I pray with him 
uh, yes, uh, when I speak with the kids mm. and he explain what's actually happened with him. Yeah. Because many time I found kids, uh, his dad or mom punish him in, in the hand. Uh, hurt him. Something like that, yes. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Abuse. Abuse, yes. Mm. Uh, and poor. I found some uh, kids, mm. her uh, mom, because he do something wrong, yeah. he bring the spoon yeah. and put it in the fire. Wow. And then? And put for the hand. <sighs> uh, at this time, I didn't uh, make my eyes to cry with, with these kids. Because it's a very difficult situation. Uh, and that, and that's that's your heart for them. That's your compassion coming out of you. Yes. Emotionally. Yes. 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 Really. Yes. And that that feeling in you, I'm assuming that that's what drives your response. You you act because yes. your heart is broken. Yes. Many time uh, I pray for, how can I help these kids? I want to uh, bring uh, this uh, this boy or girl with with me at, at my home. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, if I can do that, okay, directly I will do that. Mm, mm, mm. What's in here? Uh, we can do that. Uh, yeah. Just pray for them. Pray for them, yeah. You've mentioned a few times uh, that one of the reasons why you do what you do is because of your relationship with God. First. Yeah. Actually, what, what is it about God that motivates you to serve these children? Heart of Jesus for the kids. You know the situation with Jesus when the children come to Jesus and says, no, 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 yeah, don't yeah. create the Jesus. The different uh, situation between heart Jesus for the kids and heart uh, cybers for the kids. Mm -hmm. uh, Jesus look for the kids, it's a human, not just just the kids. Uh, he's, he's big. Uh, so each time I read as uh, chapter for the Bible mm. about the heart of Jesus mm. through the kids. Mm. I thank God for, I tell uh, and pray each time, give me little part for your heart to serve the kids. I think, I think what we see in that story is, is Jesus's compassion yeah. for those kids. And so you pray for just a little bit of that yes, compassion yes, yourself yes, for the kids. Yes, really, really. Yeah. And that compassion has really defined your, your whole ministry, your whole life. Really, I do that. Yeah. Uh, the Bible uh, used the expression as Jesus is very big angry. Two times, the same expression. Mm -hmm. The Bible, the New Testament use it for mm -hmm. the Jesus. The first time, uh, the first time, this is the second time with the kids, with, mm -hmm. the, with, the, with the kids. The first time when the Jesus uh, come to the temple, Temple, yes. Yeah, and yes. he say that many people pay and so. say something. Yeah, mm. the same expression. Jesus is very angry. I, I can't remember yes. what the expression in English actually, yes, yes, yes. but in Arabic, the same words, oh. the same letters for the words uh, for the Jesus for uh -huh. all of the New Testament. Wow. So, so, so the anger Jesus has in the temple yeah, in John chapter, John chapter 2, I think, yes, it's yes. the same anger he has against the disciples yes. for stopping them coming yes, to the kids. Yes. I never knew that really? in Arabic. That's beautiful. Uh, the same, the same words, the same letters, and wow. Wow. Uh, he be angry for the disciples. Uh, he is the, the 12 men 
is the very, very nearest for the Jesus. Yeah. At, at the same uh, equal from, he say that the main pie something at the temple. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Uh, so. Uh, so that drives what you do. Yes. That that same kind of. Like, because I think what you're talking about is compassion comes with two elements to it. Yeah. It comes with the love. There's this love that drives compassion. But also, like in that example you just shared on the Bible story, it comes with a certain sense of anger, like a righteous anger. Yeah. And both the love and the anger can actually form the compassion that we have to act in the way that we do. Well, Thank you so much for oh, spending so much time with us and telling us about the work you do, but also more importantly, perhaps the heart you have uh, to serve the vulnerable children that you're working with. All the best. Thank God you. <laughs> Thank you. I think it's really quite profound what Akram opened up for me, looking at the Arabic words uh, there for that anger. And it really is so true that God's compassion has this dual element to it, love and justice mercy, and the righting of wrongs. And those two things come together to create the holistic way that God is compassionate. And it's that that we see now as we open up uh, this part of the story. I want to show you just very briefly here some of the ways in which we see this compassion at work. It says here from verse 24, God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. The, the, this is just, interestingly, this is just 15 words in Hebrew, uh, those two verses. They're just 15 words in Hebrew. Four of those words is the word God, Elohim. Uh, God would later uh, show himself as the I am that I am, Yahweh, who we've become to be known. In this moment, though, he's just Elohim, God. Uh, and God, I'm going to draw on this. Can everybody see this? Everybody okay? So I'm going to draw God. There you go. You're welcome. It says here four times God something, God something, God something, God something. So first of all, it's God hears. Then it says, God remembers. Then it says, God sees. And finally, it says, God knows. This is what the Hebrew basically tells us to help us to understand the heart of God for his people. He is a God who hears, a God who remembers, a God who sees, and a God who knows. It says, first of all, that he hears their groaning. Now, this is really important. The, the word in Hebrew here means basically not just to listen, not just to hear something, but to actually act on what is being heard. In other words, in the Hebrew, for, to understand how God hears, it's not just to think that God has kind of like heard my prayer, but it's actually that God is going to respond and act on what he's heard. I'll give you an example. It's like my daughter Mia. Now, I say to my daughter Mia every morning, make your bed. Pretty much every day I come home after work and the bed is not made. And I know that she heard me, but she didn't hear me. Are you with me? Did you get that, right? Because if she had really heard me, she would have made the bed, right? Okay, that's the same sort of thing here. God is hearing in the sense that he doesn't just receive some sound, but he's actually going to respond. He's actually going to act. And it's interesting. Here's what he's heard. Not the crying, shouting, loud stuff, as important as that was, he hears their groaning. In other words, what he hears is their personal, oh, man, this is hard. You need to know here that that's your God. 
that sure, he comes and fights for the injustices of this world. Sure, he comes and does great, amazing things. He parts seas. He, he's a fire on top of a mountain. He's all those things. But you need to know, first and foremost, he's a personal, intimate God for you. He hears your groans, those private, personal things that no one else hears or even knows, those internal, oh, man, if only I could be free. Those are the things that he hears. And then it says that he remembers. Now, this word for remember is zakar in, in the Hebrew. It doesn't mean that God has forgotten, okay? I know when we hear this in the English, it's very easy for us to think that remembering means forgetting, right? It's not saying that God has forgotten his people and that in their crying out, he's gone like, oh, yeah, they're in slavery. Oh, totally forgot, right? It's not meaning that, okay? What it actually means is that when God remembers, the Hebrew word basically means to commit to a promise, to commit to something that you have promised to do. So where hearing comes with an action, the action is this remembering of the covenant, this covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God remembers means that he is going to stay committed to the promise that he's made. Give an example in, in Chris and I's life. Uh, we got married uh, 25 years ago. And when we got married, I said some vows. We said some vows to each other. And part of our vows to each other was we would not sleep with anybody else. We would not have an affair. We would stay committed to each other. And that's the way things are going to be. We made those vows to one another. We made those vows to God. I, after 25 years, have remembered those vows, not because I forget them here and there, but because I've remained faithful to her for 25 years. Do you see that? That's remembering the vows. That's me standing and saying, I made a commitment to this woman, and I'm going to stand by with her and, and, and alongside of her. And she's done the same for me, I think. Yes, you have. Good. She's done the same. <laughs> for me. So she has remembered the covenant. I've remembered the covenant we've made. And by remembering, what that means is not that we've forgotten. It's that we're living it out. We're committing to that priority. We're committing to that promise. When God says he remembers his covenant with Israel, he's saying, I haven't given up. I haven't stepped away from that. I'm still committed to that promise. Genesis 12 is the, is the heart of that promise where God shows up to Abraham and he says, I'm going to take you and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make the nation great. And all nations are going to be blessed through you. God comes in the exodus and says, I haven't given up on that. I am still that person. I'm still that God. That's still my promise. And I'm working that promise through even to this day. So when you think I'm distant, I'm not. When you think I haven't answered, I'm still at work. I'm a God who remembers. I'm committed to you. And I will prove my faithfulness and my commitment to you. And he does this by seeing them. He then looks upon them. That word is the word that we've looked at over the last couple of weeks. It's the word raha. It's the same word that Pharaoh's uh, daughter, when she saw Moses in the reeds, she rahad him. It means to see with emotion. It's this idea of compassion. It's this idea of something changing inside of our hearts and, and that change causing us to want to wanna be different, causing us to act in a different way. This is the same thing that Moses had when he saw his own people under slavery and he rahad, he saw them with emotion. There's compassion. This is what Akram was talking about in the film. And it's so important that you see before God does anything that he hears, he remembers, and then he has this compassion. He sees the people for who they truly are, and he sees them with this idea of, of justice and love, this idea of, of mercy and righting wrong. 
And because he sees them, he's going to go and do all the things that he does in the Exodus. And so often, God will refer back to this in the chapters ahead. I see you. I see you. I see you. And, and, and what's key to grab a hold of here is something that I think is very important because we forget this a lot. That, you see, God does not act against the evil or the sin of Egypt. He primarily acts on behalf of the freedom of his people. Now, it's really important you get this. See, compassion, not judgment, is the fuel to Exodus. Now, did the sin need to be judged? Does our sin need to be judged and dealt with with the Lord? Of course it does. But you need to understand that the starting point is not an angry God who has wrath in his heart against his sinful people and he wants to judge them. The starting part is he looks upon us, he sees us, he has compassion with us, he has grace and he has mercy and he has love. And just like Akram sees those kids and he, he sees all the things happening in their lives, but he's first motivated by love, a love that he's found in God. So God sees, which means compassion is always the driving force of why God comes and judges sin. Yeah. It's because he wants to see us free. It's because he loves us. And there is mercy and justice. There is love and the righting of wrongs. And those two things come together. And the heart of it is all this idea of love, compassion. Some of you, some of us, because I do this too, some of us, we stay in our sin because we're afraid of the anger of God against us. And we don't deal with it, and we kind of live in it, and we think God's angry at us. God's upset at us. God must be so angry at me. Oh, man, he knows all the brokenness in my life, and he, must, he, he can't like me. God's not going to do anything for me. Now, the, now, the danger of that is it becomes a cycle, because then we think we have to try to earn God's love. We have to try to uh, make him happy with us, try to appease him. All of that goes out the window when we realize that it is compassion that turns the heart of God to us. Not his anger, not his wrath, not all of that. It's his compassion. He looks on us with love. And in his love, we are able to love because he first loved us. He sees you. And that should set some of you free here to actually deal with some of the sin that you need to be dealing with. Knowing that God is not some wrathful, angry guy who wants to smite you. He's a father who runs in the field towards you, puts a robe on you and a ring on your finger and sandals on your feet, and he says, you're not going to be one of my slaves. You're my son, my daughter, my child, and we're going to do this together. So he sees, and then finally it says that he knows. I love this. He knows. The Hebrew word literally means that he, he understands everything about everything. It's this biblical sense of intimacy and knowing something fully and completely. And I want you to get this. God knows everything about you, and he has not turned his back on you. God knows all of your sin and brokenness, and it does not offend him. Sin hurts him. Sin upsets him. Sin he needs to deal with, absolutely. But he knows the intimate details of your life that no one else knows, the stuff that you would never have the courage to share with anybody. He knows that, and he still loves you. Yeah. So this security comes in knowing a God who knows us completely and still accepts us and embraces us. He hears us. He remembers his covenant. He sees with compassion. He leads with compassion, and he knows us completely. And because of all of that, that is the God of Exodus. 
That's the God who reveals himself to his people. That's the God who says, before I do anything, you need to know who I am. And if I was to kind of summarize it in ways in which you can easily remember, here it is. He is basically declaring that he is close. He hears. He's not distant. He hasn't given up on you. He's close to you. What he's also saying is that he's committed to you. He's committed to you. He's walking with you. He's right here, right now, fighting battles for you. He has not given up on you. He remembers his covenant. He's committed. He's compassionate over everything that's happening in your life, all the stuff that's going on, all the things that you thought he would be angry about or upset about. He loves you, and in his love, he has mercy and justice. He wants to be with you. He is compassionate. And then finally, of course, he is concerned because he knows you. And he's concerned about the brokenness and the sin and and what that does to you. And his concern drives him to want to respond. He is close. He is committed. He is compassionate. He is concerned. That's the God of Exodus. And that needs to be our framework that we have as we step towards the burning bush next week. This is how God introduces himself to all of his people in their slavery to sin. And this, my friends, if you remember this, if this becomes how you see God, you will actually have the courage to cry out and see the coming of a promise in your life. May that fill you with joy as you take the serious steps to no longer ignore the realities of what is happening in your life and stand before a God who hears, remembers, sees, and knows and allow him to set you free. Can I pray for you? When are you stand with me and I'm going to pray? Father, we are standing before you today as your people in the same way that Israel stood before you and groaned and cried out. And Lord, for those of us in this room who have silenced our voice, for those of us in this room who um, have silenced our cry of our soul for freedom, Father, I pray that you would come by your spirit in this moment and just begin to rebirth and refresh and renew that desire within us. Lord, you hear our groaning, those private, intimate, where we are expressing the depth of our pain, brokenness. You hear and you know. God, you have not given up on us. Every person here, you remember your covenant that you have with them, the new covenant that is in the blood of Christ Jesus. Saved, redeemed, sanctified, being made new in him. A new creation, as Paul would talk about it. God looks at you and he remembers the blood that was shed on the cross of Calvary and he sees you through that blood. He sees you and he loves you. God knows everything about you and because he knows everything about you, there is nothing you need to hide from him. The enemy will want you to feel shame. But Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. And I pray that as you find your cry again, I pray that as you recognize God is hearing you, remembers you and sees you, I pray you will find yourself unashamed before him. You will find yourself with a cry in your heart that says, do whatever it takes, the Lord. 
that you would come and realize that those promises do stand, that he is faithful and he is at work. And I pray that this would be a God. This would be your God. This would be the one that you would worship. Now, whenever the enemy would come to try to tell you differently, God is like this, nah, God is not like that. Just like he did to Adam and Eve in the garden. You would say, no, no, I stand on what the scriptures say. I stand on a God who hears, remembers, sees, and knows. That's my God. Father, I pray that that would set us free. And we thank you for this.